Hungry Ghosts, um, episode five, and we're going to talk about a subject close to our hearts mm. this week, which is the greatest piss artists of all time. <laughs> History's great boozers. History's great boozers. Drinkers through the ages. Drinkers through the ages. I mean, it's a tale as old as time. <laughs> um, we touched last week on Selim the Drunk, mm. and who's rapidly becoming a friend of the show, I think. Yes. Two, two mentions in a row. Two mentions in a row. And I mean, just an absolute lad. Yeah. A lot of respect for Selim the Drunk. The guy who, just to recap, possibly instigated the downfall of the Ottoman Empire by invading Cyprus because he ran out of wine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Turns out he was just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, there's a lot more to uncover when it comes to drunken mistakes. A lot more. For example, Mm. are you aware of the story of Andre the Giant? I've heard the name, but I don't know if I know the full backstory. Well... Let me give you some context. French wrestler mm. by the name of Andre Rusimov. You may recognise his visage because it's known to hipsters everywhere as the brand, the face of um, Obey. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obey Giant and all that. Um, so he was, well, according to this thing that I'm reading now, seven feet four inches tall, but seems to be a bit of... Um, debate on that you know wrestlers sometimes build higher <laughs> he seems to have been somewhere between six foot even and seven feet four massive um 520 pounds which i think is about 240 kilograms Jeez. big lad big lad big unit big lad um and yeah also known as the eighth wonder of the world she's <laughs> up there with the the pyramids of giza yeah the taj mahal taj mahal and then there's andre yeah <laughs> a frenchman yeah <laughs> Um, and he was a le- he was legendary for his imbibing of alcohol. Mm. Uh, he told David Letterman that he once quit drinking to, I think, um, lose weight before a fight. And during the time when he had quit, he was still drinking five bottles of wine with dinner. <laughs> <laughs> so what did he quit? Did he quit like hard, hard spirits and beer? I don't know. <laughs> I feel like I'd probably quit beer if I was trying to lose weight for a fight lose yeah but then wine the is hugely calorific so that's not yeah, going to help sure, you yeah. um, your weight loss but then he's French so what? he would he, 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 they drink wine like water exactly well yeah, clear, yeah. yeah. five <laughs> bottles worth which is with dinner um, yeah I don't know what, what is the best I suppose vodka and tonic slim, vodka and tonic slim line. yeah skinny bitch they call it no fun is it yeah. <laughs> um, he apparently rang up a $40,000 bar tab at a Hyatt in London <laughs> Over a lot, over a one month period, um, when he his go to order apparently was uh, forty ounces of various liquors poured into a pitcher, a drink known as the American. Ooh, um, <laughs> just like a cocktail, or just whatever's going. Fucking hell! Uh, he once drank one hundred and nineteen beers in six hours. What size beer? Pints. This Bottle? says this is twelve ounce. It's got to be a three thirty mil, has it? So, yeah, I think a twelve ounce is like a pint. Oh really? Or sixty? I think we have sixteen ounce pints in the UK. Actually, twelve ounce in milliliters. Yeah. Is yeah three hundred and fifty milliliters. So basically, a, a bottle three thirty yeah. mil. Yeah. I mean, still an incredible achievement. Yeah. Yeah, Guinness World Record breaking. Well, quite possibly. <laughs> Funnily enough, actually, we'll get later on to Guinness World Record breaking <laughs> boozing. Um, another one, according to his wrestling colleague and fellow legend boozer Ric Flair Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
Andre once drank a plane's entire stock of vodka while on a trip to Japan. Although I feel like that, like he said, um, I've been on a 747 with him going to Tokyo from Chicago. We drank every bottle of vodka on the plane. But I mean, I've been on planes where they run out of meals. Yeah. (laughs) Which, considering they know how many passengers are going to be on the plane, is ridiculous. Yes. So they may not have had that much vodka on them. But I feel like, when, when did he die? 1993. 1993. So he was probably in his peak travelling period in the 70s and the 80s, let's say. Yeah. And I feel like in those periods, certainly if kind of television and film is to believe, to be believed, there was a lot of boozing going on on, on flights. Yeah. There was serious amounts. They were, they were making like full cocktails for people back in the day on, on they, flights. Yeah. yeah. And you could smoke. You could smoke as well. Good old days, weren't they? In the air. The glory days of air travel. Liver failure and lung cancer. Yeah. The 1970s. Well, Andre sadly died of um, congestive heart failure, which is probably not that surprising. Um, no. This is my favourite story, though, on this list. From another wrestling legend, Hulk Hogan. Yes. <laughs> who travelled extensively with Andre. And again, on a trip to Japan, um, he said, I went down to this karaoke bar right down the street from the hotel and bought a case of wine. 12 bottles of this very powerful, powerful, strong, white French wine. We left the hotel about 8 in the morning for an 8-hour bus ride. Three hours later, he shakes the seat. He said, I need a pit stop. Three hours on a bus, he drank 12 bottles of wine. (laughs) Incredible. (laughs) Which is, I mean, 12 bottles of wine is a lot of wine. That's a huge amount of wine. I remember when we were at university, there was a... um, an off license mm. called Gaffs. Yes. We to, yeah, we can say the name. Yeah. We won't bring anything um, slanderous into it on this again. No. Um, <laughs> there, was a, there was another one uh, as well up the road from it. And they both did a, a deal where it's three bottles of wine for a fiver. It was incredible, incredible deal in your student days. Incredible deal. For, yeah. I mean, which considering like, I mean, if we'd been at university in like the 80s, then fair enough. <laughs> this was like 2010. I think the, the tax on that was... You know, it would be more than five quid just in duty. I mean, not that they were necessarily yeah. paying the tax man. Yeah. Um, but it was bizarre. It was like, had the taste of, it was almost like rye, like squash. It was very it. sweet. Like very, it was really sweet. And mm. I, I would suggest water down, but it was definitely strong. Mm. And I think, I, I can't remember ever having succeeded in having all three and keeping them down in one night. No, I just so, it wouldn't be good for your stomach that amount of not the wine necessary, but that amount of like cheap shit wine that's full of sugar and yeah crap just would have been so twelve in three hours. When you consider <laughs> like Andre was a big guy, yeah, you know, they called him Andre the Giant. He's the eighth wonder of the world. <laughs> but I mean, you know, he's seven foot tall, which is it's not as if he's not four times the height of me. No, <laughs> he's a no. bit taller, really. In he's a bit taller, weight wise. You know, he's he's probably he's, he's more packing, than twice my weight. Yeah. Uh, but still, it's, it's impressive. It's drinking to excess. It's, it's drinking to excess. <laughs> drinking very much to excess. Um, speaking of problem drinkers, mm. of whom Andre probably would fit into that category. Certainly. Um, what are we drinking tonight? Well, I thought that we got off lightly last week with a delicious red wine, and yeah, we needed we, to really we, <laughs> we needed a return to form. Um, with something that's a little more challenging and exciting. So, I've got us some lovely cans of Carlsberg Special Brew mm, yes. Danish Lager. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Um, which, 
certainly in the UK is very much known as the alcohol of uh, well, problem drinkers. Problem drinkers. Quite often, people on the streets. You often see cans kind of littered around, uh, you know, under under bridges and, and various seedy areas. It's not <laughs> probably, uh, I would assume, drunk by that many beer connoisseurs. It's just drunk, the sort of drink you drink to get pissed. But as we were saying, so this was it was my round this week to mm. buy the drinks, and I was surprised by how expensive it was considering its reputation yeah um and also i'd say um it's actually it's pretty nice it's pretty nice it's nice yeah. than it's your average carlsberg i would say yeah it's it's definitely better than your average carlsberg um i'm not saying a great deal but yeah do you know much about the history of of special brew no enlighten me please um well interestingly enough um it, i'll start with its recent history because it's Traditionally, it was yeah very much seen as the the drink of kind of people, piss artists, people who just wanted to drink to get a drink at nine percent ABV a can. Yeah. Uh, sorry, uh, on average for and it's a four forty mil can, so that's quite a lot of alcohol you're ingesting. Mm-hmm. These days, um, they actually reduced the alcohol percentage to eight and a half percent in um, twenty fifteen, and sadly, looking at the cans we have today, they've dropped it by another percent to seven and a half. So it's pathetic, isn't it? It's it's yeah. Absolutely pathetic. Coward. PC gone mad. Um, Carlsberg, you're cowards. You're bowing to uh, health regulations. It's PC and- gone mad. <laughs> it's PC gone mad. Um, I think it, the, it, what is a bit double standards about it is nowadays you go to any like hipster craft brewery tap room sort of thing, mm. they'll have loads of beers that are stronger than 9%. Exactly, exactly. Although they quite often have them in like, oh, you can only get a half, you can only get a third, which I hate. Cause... Yeah, but you can order as many as you want. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose the price is a bit more prohibitive in, the, in those places. The price is quite prohibitive. But anyway, yeah, it's a lovely 7.5%. Um, known as Spech for short, or Tramp Juice. I get it. Yeah, um, so that's, that's, that's more offensive. But actually, it has quite illustrious beginnings. Um, mm. It was actually brewed uh, to honour a visit by Sir Winston Churchill to Denmark in the 1950s. Right. So after the Second World War, Churchill, you know, very much seen as the hero of Europe, saved, you know, Europe from from the Nazis. He went on a visit to, to Denmark, to Copenhagen, and the Royal Danish Court and the brewers at Carlsberg said, we need to honour this man and we're going to create him Carlsberg Special Brew. Right. A very strong beer because he was a very large alcoholic. <laughs> and... Uh, with hints of cognac notes in it, and and he was a huge, which we'll get onto in a bit, but a huge uh, consumer of, of cognac. So you can taste it a bit. You can taste the, the notes of cognac. Notes. Yeah. Um, Let me just. Oh, Ooh. that's good sound effect. <laughs> it's really good. This guy's a pro. Lovely. Stick that up your ass off menu. <laughs> Live. Um, I'm reading a thing here about Special Brew that says the novelist Kingsley Amos was a fan mm. mixing it half and half with regular Carlsberg Pilsner and praising its ability to create goodwill <laughs> but I just think well, that, actually, that really that really that really angers me yeah, I'll tell you why yeah. just be in for a penny in for a pound don't go oh I'm going to have half a Special Brew and half a normal Carlsberg yeah. it's so such a you shit you just end up with like a what, maybe 6% on average beer. You've got rubbish normal Carlsberg when you could be having delicious cognac-flavoured special brew that yeah. is surprisingly tasty. Exactly. Um, That's compared to some of the other literary 
cocktails, which we'll get onto a bit later, that's a poor effort from Amos. Very, very poor effort from Amos. Terrible. Um, yeah, well, why don't you, as we were yeah. talking of Churchill, why don't you... Speaking of, speaking of Churchill, as I was saying, he was one of history's greatest leaders and greatest drunks. Yeah. He famously, um, obviously, delivered... Europe from the the threat of the Nazis, but he pretty much did so half cut, or if not fully cut, at all times. Right. Uh, there are plenty and plenty of quotes attributed to uh, to Churchill about his drinking. Um, there are two really famous ones, um, but the the one I, I really like is always remember that I've taken more out of alcohol than alcohol has taken out of me. It's really good, though. <laughs> it's really, really, good. really good. It's the right it's really attitude. It's, yeah, exactly right. The other one, of course, is the uh, the one where um, he, a woman accused him of being drunk and he said, Madam, I may be drunk, but in the morning I will be sober and you will still be ugly. He had a great wit. Such a good, <laughs> such a good zinger. He's, he's such a, such a good zinger. And it, what's great is that he was absolutely doing all these zingers when he was absolutely trolleyed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was yeah. brilliant. Um, so much so, actually, and there's a lot of famous speeches um, attributed to Churchill, obviously, during the war, things like, you know, we'll fight them on the beaches, never surrender, all those sorts of things. Um, but actually, Christopher Hitchens, uh, RIP, um, who was also a, a pretty serious boozer, um, he revealed, and I don't know what his sources were, but he revealed in 2002 that many of the famous Churchill radio broadcasts, including Fight Them on the Beaches, were actually uh, voiced by an actor because yeah. Churchill was so drunk at the time that he couldn't go on air wow. to to broadcast those. So I don't know what the source is for that from Christopher Hitchens, but it's uh, pretty powerful stuff, if true. Well, maybe there's something in the whole being slightly off your head because Churchill helped defeat the Nazis yeah in a big way yeah um, while half cut yeah JFK averted World War 3 well I don't think pissed but certainly in all sorts of dalliances <laughs> well yeah obviously <laughs> shagging but um, so maybe mm. that's a slight altered state of consciousness which gives you I don't know yeah some kind of edge in diplo- diplomatic Dipl- affairs definitely there's a quite a weird connection to, to JFK as well as the in later life, Churchill became firm friends uh, with Aristotle Onassis, who, and they used to go on his yacht, the Christina O, mm-hmm. and neck about 12 bottles of champagne during dinner. And of course, Aristotle Onassis married Jackie, Jackie. Kennedy. Yeah. So it all swings around about, really. What goes around comes around. Yeah. Small world. I'd like to talk you through some of the the claims or you know the, the reality of what Churchill was um, was drinking. So he, yeah. he obviously had an expense account uh, with his wine supplier, and and here's what his tally was for March uh, 1937. So one month, basically, this is what he was drinking. Yeah. Uh, 180 full bottles and 30 half bottles of Paul Roger champagne. Wow. Uh, 29 bottles of other champagnes. He liked his Paul Roger. Um, 100 bottles of claret. So we're already on 10 <laughs> bottles of wine a day. <laughs> we're on 10 bottles of wine a day. 117 and 389 half bottles. So what's that maths-wise? But about 250-odd full bottles of... Um, 
uh, red wine, uh, burgundy, uh, 13 bottles of brandy, uh, five bottles of champagne brandy, so mm-hmm. slightly different brandy, um, and seven bottles of whiskey a month. Wow. It's incredible. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, because some of the things w- which you hear about churches that like oh, it was exaggerated and that he's because one of the famous things, I think it was his daughter said that he used to have because famously he drank brandy with breakfast. Yes. But supposedly he just it was rubbed on the bottom of a glass and he had water in the glass. So then he sipped it over the mm. But then judging by those wine figures. Yeah. He was not just a casual <laughs> He was not just a casual drinker. And I think he uh there's coming to the breakfast thing, there was a quote that was he said something along the lines of, uh, in his youth, he used to uh, refrain from drink before lunch. But right. in his latter years, he used to refrain from drink before breakfast. He <laughs> <laughs> was a man of restraint. He was a man of restraint. Um, and talking to breakfast, some people, some journalists actually tried to recreate, in the name of journalism, obviously, yes. Churchill's daily intake of alcohol. My guys, this is great journalism. This <laughs> is brilliant journalism. So they, they started with an eye-opener at breakfast, pre-breakfast. Um, of a splash, just a splash of Johnny Walker Red Label mixed with soda water. Okay. So, lovely little whiskey and soda to get things going. Um, and then he'd all he'd kind of conduct his morning business with two or three uh, whiskey sodas, um, and and that just to get things you know ship shape and yeah. and functioning. Yeah. Then lunch. Uh, for lunch, Churchill, in his words, would have an ambitious quota of champagne. <laughs> As we've said, his preferred brand was, was Paul Roger. Um And he used to <laughs> consume between two up to three bottles on the average lunch. Wow, wow really? <laughs> yes. However, in the afternoon, he had a nap. So he took it easy. Oh, he was after, wouldn't he? He was that, uh, yeah, knackered, I guess, after all that Kicks. losing and saving of the world. And that he had to have a little, mean, he earned a drink. A little nineteen-minute <laughs> nap to clear the cobwebs. The journalist who did it said that the nap actually completely threw them out of a whack because they were so tired oh, that really, when they woke really. up after ninety minutes, they just felt absolutely terrible. It's too long for a nap. It's though. too long for a nap. Shit after that. Um, and the hangovers really kicked in. So at tea time, he obviously didn't drink tea. He had uh, more scotch and sodas, which was really his his drink for when he was doing his administrative tasks. So that's a work drink. His work drink was a scotch and soda. Dinner, that's where he, where he gets interesting. You know, the, uh, well, not the screws are loose. Whatever. The floodgates have opened. Yeah. yeah. Literally. Uh, and it was... <laughs> he must have, oh, I, suppose, I was going to say he must have broken the seal big time with all those bottles of champagne. Oh, God, yeah. Well, come at, in his latter years, um, when he was on Aristotle and Assis's boat, he was famously had uh, incontinence and oh, really? various bowel issues, which probably is you know a lifetime of doing that to your insides. Well, probably doesn't Opportunity help. for us to say on this episode, don't try this at home. <laughs> Do not try this at home. <laughs> We're not condoning this. We're just talking about this for research. Anyway, dinner. Finally, he'd, he'd round off the day with champagne until dinner concluded and then a bottle of cognac before bed. Sure. Uh, all in all, the journalists themselves who tried it said they were absolutely dead. Both of them were violently sick for days afterwards. And uh, I don't know how this man did and, it for decades. And that's journalists. And that's journalists. That. And they drink. But this man, Vincent Churchill, did this for consistently for decades 
whilst running a country and winning a well, war. He was a great man. He was a great man. Speaking of which, I mean, there's a so I, I, I've read a couple of things about Churchill and like things about um, sort of analyses of how, how he did what he did when he was drinking so much. Mm. But a couple of these things, and I think it's probably indicative of like some uh, apologism for Churchill because they're just trying to make excuses for him, maybe. <laughs> but like a, a lot of it revolves around um, oh, being an alcoholic is not about how much you drink, it's about how you kind of relate to it. Yeah. Even though you can very much be a high functioning alcoholic. But um there's a great quote in this one. So it says um and bear in mind this is the International Churchill Society. <laughs> but this this article says most historians reject the commonly held belief that Churchill was an abuser of alcohol. Perhaps abuser is too broad a word. Professor Warren Kimball maintains that Churchill was not an alcoholic because quote no alcoholic could drink that much. <laughs> I mean, it's Which a is a very great summation of how, like, well, some people would say if you're drinking that much and you're also defeating Hitler, then you're not an alcoholic. You just drink no. too much. But... I, th- I think it's just a definition I mean, of a functioning we're alcoholic <laughs> in this age. Functioning alcoholic. Another uh, quite funny thing is that when he used to visit um, Roosevelt over in the US, they had a special term for when Winston came to visit, which was. Uh, in the White House, they referred to it as Winston hours, and it basically <laughs> meant that the president would not be seen for the foreseeable future because he'd be getting three sheets to the wind with the prime minister, and he'd then need to, Roosevelt would then have a three-day hangover every time Winston Churchill left. Well, as we know from personal experience, Americans, no, no offence to our American listeners, they can't drink. Certainly not like the, the British, no. no. Um, having said that, an American who mm. was another person with a great, um, well, a great boozer and also a great way with words when it came to alcohol, but also everything else. Because I'm yes. talking about Ernest Hemingway. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, some great, he, he came out with some great quotes about alcohol, including, a man does not exist until he is drunk. <laughs> I drink to make other people more interested. <laughs> and my personal favourite. Which has done the rounds, you may have heard it before, but always do sober what you said you'd do drunk. That will teach you to keep your mouth shut. <laughs> I love that. And Hemingway, um, he is credited with having invented a couple of cocktails. Mm, yes. Um, so famously, the Hemingway daiquiri. Lovely, lovely Hemingway daiquiri. Yeah. So yeah. he was in, when he was living in Havana, um, was in uh, Floridita's, which is this mm. very famous bar for daiquiris. Um, and he tried the, their famous daiquiri and he said, um, double the rum and take out the sugar. Mm. And then it's often, I think, served with grapefruit, yeah. and maraschino yeah. liqueur as well. Yeah. Um, uh, cause he was diabetic, so he didn't want sugar, didn't sugar. in cocktails. The maraschino has sugar in it. Yeah. But maybe I, that was a latter I adaption. feel like Hemingway wouldn't have added, well, is maraschino like a cherry liqueur? It's a cherry liqueur. Yeah. yeah. But I've, I don't think he would have been putting cherry liqueur. Maybe it's the sort of thing, thing people added afterwards because actually it is quite good to have sugar in extremely sour drinks, but maybe Hemingway yeah. didn't have it in his specifically. But he wanted for the be, layman, they might have needed a bit of sugar. He was a, he, he did try and be a bit of a macho man. Hemingway. Yeah. Um, and also the uh, cocktail Death in the Afternoon mm-hmm. shares a name with his famous book of the same name, but um, which is absinthe with champagne free poured over the top. We should have had that in the absinthe with, episode. Know, we should, we, <laughs> maybe, the, maybe series two, the budget will have extended. Yeah. <laughs> we get some Paul Roger. Um, 
he, much like Andre the Giant, mm. had a period of, in inverted commas, not drinking. <laughs> Sobriety. <laughs> which, during the 50s when his health was in sharp decline and his doctor told him to lay off the booze, uh, which for Hemingway meant coming back to just a litre of wine per day and one cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> it's not quite under the giant it's not, levels. But still, I mean, if you're having a, one absinthe cocktail a day, for example, that's going to um, do some damage. Yeah. yeah. I suppose it depends on your measures of absinthe and champagne and well, your death in the afternoon. Exactly. My personal favourite Hemingway booze story, mm. however, is that he claimed to have liberated the bar of the Ritz Hotel in Paris from the Nazis in 1944. <laughs> So <laughs> Hemingway was a war correspondent because mm. he was a journalist before he was a novelist or alongside being a novelist. And, um, but I think as befits someone who liked a bit of self-mythologizing and a bit of heroizing himself, yeah. he kind of did, um, I think he got involved with sending messages to people on the front line as like, so he kind of got involved in the action in, in mm. World War II. And he, I think he was living in Paris at this time. So um, during the liberation of Paris, which was August 1944, he burst into the Ritz Hotel and announced that he had come to liberate it in its bar, which had served as a watering hole for a long time. <laughs> Supposedly Goering and Goebbels used to drink. Oh, wow. Um, and then uh, the manager of the hotel approached him and Hemingway demanded, where are the Germans? I've come to liberate the Ritz. <laughs> And the manager replied, Monsieur, they left a long time ago. <laughs> and I cannot let you in here with a weapon. <laughs> so Hemingway went back to the Jeep and he left his gun there. Uh, and then came back to the bar and ran up a tab for 51 dry martinis. <laughs> um, Fantastic. According to Hemingway's brother, Lester, the writer searched the cellar with his men, taking two prisoners and finding an excellent stock of brandy. And then inspecting the roof and the upper floors, they found nothing but sheets drying in the wind, which they riddled with bullets just in case they were Germans. <laughs> so that gives you an idea of the element of uh, fantasising that was going on. Yeah, it sounds like a good fun activity to... It sounds like a great fun. Shoot some, shoot some sheets whilst... He's kind of got the best of both worlds war-wise, because mm. he's not really had to do much no. of the dirty work, and then he's trying to get some of the glory. Getting a lot of the glory. Have you heard about the uh, Hemingway competition that they have in Florida Keys? Oh, no. It's a very funny... Uh, competition they have annually um, where they get a load of American men to dress up of like a s- later years Hemingway so right. kind of white hair beard, beard Hemingway um, with a little sash around the neck fisherman jumper fisherman jumper exactly and they all go to Florida Keys where I believe he lived for a, yeah, I think for so, a time yeah, yeah. and uh, I think it's a, um, the Senior Frogs or it's one of those kind of rap like American bars, yeah. um, Trader Joe's, something like that. One of those kind of like American yeah. uh, beach town, like bar chains. Um, and there's a competition and they're judged, these men, to, to who is the most Hemingway for that particular year. And by they do looks like, and By looks and personality. Right. <laughs> so they have to like do a speech like to the crowd and you know, Drink do, a, do a kind of stand, not, not a catwalk, but kind of stand there right. and look Hemingway-ish. Okay. They're judged by former winners, so that these, these guys know their onions, oh, what wow. they're looking for. And they get crowned, the, 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 the person who wins gets crowned Papa right, of, yeah. the, of the year um, and well, you know, gets to judge potentially next year. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah his, um, his, the Hemingway daiquiri is also known as the Papa Doble because mm, yeah. it's... Uh, a double rum daiquiri invented by Papa. Papa. Anyway. <laughs> um, 
an interesting foil to Hemingway in lots of ways, writing-wise, personality-wise, um, was his great friend F. Scott Fitzgerald, mm. whose story was kind of, I mean, I was going to say more tragic. Hemingway ended up killing himself, obviously, which is about as tragic as it gets. But with Fitzgerald, it's like he was, you know, he was so young when he died. I think he was 44. And it literally is just, he just died. He just drank himself to death. Drank himself to death. Um, and he seems to have been, there's always, like with Hemingway and Fitzgerald, I always think you can, their personalities come across so much in, the, in their writing. And so like Hemingway's, mm. Writing is very like lean, athletic, sort of robust, like masculine, masculine. Yeah, um, and Fitzgerald's is, I mean, in my opinion, better. But it's also like you can tell that it's like there's like a delicacy to it. And like as it turned out, he was kind of maybe a bit too delicate for the for the lifestyle <laughs> that he chose for himself. Yeah. Anyway. I mean, Hemingway said, even though Fitzgerald was was famous as a boozer, like ever since he was famous for anything um Hemingway said it was hard to accept him as a drunkard since he was affected by such small quantities of alcohol god so he was a lightweight <laughs> supposedly but then you know sometimes people come across as um lightweights and they're just secretly yeah smashed yeah flasks or having whiskey for breakfast oh yeah um but yeah, heart attack of 44. He said about himself, and he, the, again, the, something that's so tragic about Fitzgerald is because of when, the way that his career went and the way that the like, reception towards him went, he died, I mean, thinking that he was a failure. Yeah. The Great Gatsby was a flop as far as he was concerned. Yeah. Um, and even though he had been very famous, obviously, during his life, uh, he said he described himself as having had a two-cylinder inferiority complex. Um, so... I mean, you can be, you know, one of the greatest novelists of all time and still have an inferior. <laughs> yeah, complex. definitely. There's also, uh, I mean, the literary world is absolutely full of... Of course, yeah. ...tragic yeah. boozers. One of them, um, the poet Elizabeth Bishop, she supposedly she would go months without booze and then she would drink herself into insensibility. And uh, she didn't care what she drank as long as it brought oblivion, this article says. On one binge, having exhausted all the alcohol in the house, she drank eau de cologne and other perfumes. <laughs> She's very Jesus, whipping out. Jesus, that is very whipping out. She drinks the lighter Not quite as bad as that, but... Oh, my God, that's horrendous. There's also, I mean, if we're talking about, you know, the mythologising, how mm. it compares to real life, um, one of the most famous boozers and general delinquents of the literary world, Hunter Thompson. Yes. And there's this very famous thing, um, which has done the rounds... Lots of people will have heard it already, but it would be remiss of us not to not mention, to mention it. Chris Thompson, this, um, friend of the show. Yeah, <laughs> big big friend of the show. When we're on this episode, but he's also he's also it's also um, an interesting example of the way that like the interplay between truth and mythology, as his whole like writing style was as yeah. well. But um, this was how his uh, daily routine was described um, in a book by. Um, a biographer, E. Jean Carroll. And she wrote uh, a book called The Hunter, The Strange and Savage Life of Hunter S. Thompson, which came out in 1993, and included this um, biography, which is done the rounds on social media. Uh, Okay, biography. Daily routine, which is done the rounds on social media. So this is how Hunter S. Thompson, according to this woman, spent 
his average day. 3 p.m. rise. <laughs> 3 p.m. <laughs> Fuck's sake. <laughs> 305, Shivas Regal with the morning papers. Am I Lovely. pronouncing that right? Yeah, yeah. Shivas, yeah. yeah. Dunhills. 345, cocaine. 350, another glass of Shivas, Dunhill. 405, first cup of coffee, Dunhill. 415, cocaine. 416, orange juice, Dunhill. 430, cocaine, cocaine, uh, coffee, Dunhills. Ice in the shoe. 6 p.m. grass to take the edge off. <laughs> Wait, we're only at 6 p.m. <laughs> so he's been waiting for three hours. He's been waiting for three hours. And he's had, what, about 15 drinks and about 20 death 20 cigarettes? Of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I haven't been cocaine. Um, 7.05, Woody Creek Tavern for lunch. 7.05 p.m. <laughs> lunch? <laughs> Uh, he's having a Heineken, two margaritas, coleslaw, taco salad, a double order of fried onion rings, carrot cake, ice cream, a bean fritter, Dunhills, another Heineken, cocaine, and for the ride home, a snow cone, a glass of shredded ice, which is poured three or four jiggers of shivas. Now, um, I don't think, from what I've, from what I've heard, mm. a man who's had that much cocaine in the course of a few hours... <laughs> Uh, is not going to be eating a feast no, at 7pm. No, uh, but it, It's an appetite suppressant, I believe. Hunter S. Thompson was built differently, of course. He was built differently. So 9pm, he gets home from dinner. Lunch. Stop. Sorry, from lunch. <laughs> well, we are in Manchester. We are up north. Yeah, okay. Dinner. American, American um, lunch. American lunch. 9pm, start snorting cocaine seriously. <laughs> Jesus, what? There's then an hour, an hour's gap in the schedule. 11pm drops acid. So what's he doing between 10 and 11? I think he's just doing cocaine series. Oh, right, that's right. I know, that's between 9 and 10. Oh. Between 10 and 11, there's another... There's a mysterious gap. Gap, where I guess he's just waiting for the acid to kick. Maybe he's doing some work, they're getting, getting a book done. That comes later. Okay. <laughs> um, 11pm, and I respect this a lot, he brings out the chartreuse. Ooh. Chartreuse. We should get that for an episode. Yeah, definitely, absolutely. Mm. Chartreuse, cocaine and grass. 11.30, cocaine, etc., etc. 12 midnight, Hunter S. Thompson is ready to write. <laughs> God. And then they just... She then blocks out six, a six-hour section of chartreuse, cocaine, grass, shivas, coffee, Heineken, clove cigarettes. Mm. I've been partial respect to that. a clovey yeah. myself. Yeah, I respect that a lot. They travels in Indonesia. Grapefruit, Dunhills, orange juice, gin, continuous pornographic movies. So he was right. He started writing after a nine-hour bender, yeah, and carried on the bender throughout, yeah, if not escalating. Uh, and then this is my favourite entry. This is six a.m. and we're in the hot tub <laughs> with, with the typewriter. Or has he stopped working? <laughs> I don't know. Um, hot tub, champagne, Dove bars, which is an, like an ice cream bar. I looked it up. Right. Champagne, Dove bars, and fettuccine Alfredo. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, 8 a.m. Halcyon, which is like a sleeping pill. Okay. And then 8.20, sleep. Uh, so he w- wakes up. I mean, he's getting... I, I can't do maths <laughs> right now because it's special brew. He's, he's getting, getting over nine hours. He's getting, he's getting seven hours, I think. He's getting eight till he twelve. So three. That, yeah, he's getting eight till twelve, so that's four. And he's getting twelve oh, till three, so that's seven. seven. That's seven. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, obviously, that's hilarious. Yeah. But um, I, I think... I mean, when I first read this, I thought it was written by him because it's so... She absolutely nails his... His writing style, yeah. Like, his thing of that ridiculous um, 
like being that like dissipated lifestyle like frenetic then, energy of his writing and then well. eating stuff yeah and then <laughs> yeah. He, but then eating stuff that's so like mundane like, <laughs> yeah. like in fear and loathing he always goes on like grapefruit like he's supposed to grapefruit <laughs> um and so i thought i mean she's absolutely nailed it with with that um but also this book which is the thing that never gets mentioned when people talk about this routine is that it deliberately is portrayed as like some of the chapters are fictional including this uh... one as kind of because, you know, if you're doing a biography of Hunter Thompson, you've got to do it in a kind of arty way. Yeah, 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 absolutely. In a way that blends fact and fiction in the same way that his writing did. So I think, I mean, it's a brilliant bit of writing. It's hilarious, but don't take it literally. <laughs> don't, don't, don't do what those journalists did with the Churchill and try and recreate that, because Please. even Hunter Thompson would probably die yeah. as a result of that. Yeah. No fettuccine Alfredo at 6am. That's fatal. No way. No. It's talking about... You know, American artists who seems to be the only Americans who can drink properly is artistic American people. Yeah. Um, lest we forget, old blue eyes, Frank Sinatra. Chairman of the board. Chairman of the board. I don't think there's anyone who quite has the brand recognition associated with a particular drinks product yeah. and their problem drinking of it than... Uh, and Frank Sinatra and obviously his connection with the Jack Daniels yeah um, has proved to be quite good marketing for Jack Daniels sure has. but you probably don't want to celebrate someone who effectively drank themselves to death drinking your your whiskey for... did he <laughs> Sinatra even though he did to be quite old he died of Alzheimer's they said but well he officially died of Alzheimer's but a lot of his friends said it wasn't the Alzheimer's that killed him it was, it was the whiskey um, right okay but he did live to be quite old um but yeah, yeah, it was Mitchell Fink who um, knew knew him quite well and actually wrote a biography of of Sinatra. Said it wasn't the Alzheimer's that killed him; it was the bourbon. Right. Um, he was drinking a bottle of Jack Daniels a day until he was eighty. That's a lot. And Fink also says, which is a bit of a, a running theme, when his doctors told him to, that he needed to stop drinking, he did what a lot of alcoholics do in similar circumstances: he switched to wine. <laughs> Right. So I don't know. has no alcohol. I don't know what these, all these alcoholics seem to have got this notion that um, switching to wine or some somehow be the. Uh, I mean, I can kind of see the logic because obviously the reason you drink less whiskey is because it's stronger than wine. Mm. But I reckon if you like, if you're an alcoholic, I mean, even if you if you're sitting drinking, you know, with other people, and it's like you're having a drinking session, or whatever. I think the fact that there's less in your glass, even if it is 40%, you're going to drink it quicker. You're going yeah. to drink more of it. Yeah. So I feel like, like if you were drinking beer, say, rather than wine, there is a limit to how much, I mean, obviously you can get good and pissed on beer, but yeah. like, there's a limit, a limit to how much liquids. You, Yeah, liquid that's true, drink. I think. Yeah, like if you're drinking a bottle of whiskey a day, you could probably drink a bottle, or maybe two bottles in the same amount of time, if you're Frank Sinatra, but it probably do have less overall alcohol content. Yeah within it you'd expect the thing i find interesting about sinatra is because they say that sinatra was buried with a bottle of jack daniels mm. but like i mean and you're much more of a whiskey connoisseur than i am but i don't think jack daniels is considered like very good is it no <laughs> not really so why would you if you're like if you're a big boozer mm. and you're one of the world's most famous people mm. And you're presumably very rich. Yeah. Why are you choosing Jack Daniels? I think I think that might be maybe more of a modern thing as well. I think certainly in the fifties and the sixties, uh, 
the the mainstream brands today that are very mainstream and considered not that good because they're so mainstream yeah, and so yeah. widely available were actually at very at the height of cool and fashion right, right. in the fifties and the sixties and now obviously they've been replicated and arguably bettered over the years by other competitors in that space and now we sort of think of those as like the bog standard right whereas actually that's because they were the greats. they were the greats of their day and they were you know incredible marketing and branding campaigns behind them that made them like the height of cool yeah a really um good good thing a funny thing about sinatra when we're thinking about him trying to cut down on his his alcoholism Mm. one thing he wouldn't drink uh was water (laughs) <laughs> and if, if he was <laughs> on the grounds that fish fuck in it <laughs> so okay <laughs> believe that that water uh was filthy for this reason and if a bartender set down some water in front of him he would say what the hell is this i'm thirsty not dirty take it away now basically water's good for washing in not for drinking does sinatra know that um the water that we drink famously doesn't come from the sea. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, but he uh, he had certainly had a big thing with just water things in general. So quite often, he had a, it was a very specific amount of ice cubes should be served in his, uh, his Jack Daniels. Oh, so he liked um, ice? He didn't so, like no. Water. Well, he liked to have four cubes of ice, mm. no more, even though obviously it's made of water. I don't think he saw the... Uh, not that bright, maybe. <laughs> maybe not that bright. <laughs> but if he, if he was served any more than four, he would fish it out and he would say, uh, I've got a problem with all this ice. We're not meant to be skating here. That's not my sport. As a reference to that ice is for ice skating, not for drinking. I feel like with both those things, he just he sat around and thought of something, and he thought for that's, ages. That's really <laughs> for clever. Hours and hours. I'm going to say that and be really rude to loads of barmen yeah, and uh, exactly waiters. Yeah. Um, speaking of people who have never been told no and uh. mythologized, probably beyond their talents. Yeah. Um, you may have heard of a little guy called. Alexander of Macedon, or as yes. his mother called him, Alexander the Great. <laughs> I have heard of him. Yes. Um, which is something that I didn't know until uh, doing my diligent research for this mm. podcast. Was He was also a great boozer, not only a great military leader. I, I think it was the time, wasn't it? You know, they just drank yeah. a yeah. lot in and ancient Greece. and Mainly, mainly wine, mm. I'd say. Um, but so again, it's interesting. I mean, when you're going so when you're going thousands of years back in the past, very hard to draw definite conclusions about an individual's personality or, or motivations, or whatever. But um, a historian, John Maxwell O'Brien, said that um, Alexander was driven to alcoholism by his over-demanding parents, mm. which probably believe. And it, again, it goes back to the thing of. You can be F. Scott Fitzgerald or indeed Alexander the Great. Yes. And you can still have a, an inferiority complex, yeah. be insecure. Um, but yeah, this, this book says that uh, he, the Macedonian king who built an empire from Greece to India in only, in only 10 years before dying at the age of 32, turned to the bottle to escape personal inadequacy. His drinking bouts are legendary and one, he killed his friend Cletus. Mm. <laughs> Cletus. Cletus. <laughs> what, the Cletus? 
um, who had saved his life in battle with a spear um, and then wept for three days. Um, and apparently this... Uh, May I have a special brew? Oh, please, yeah. <laughs> so I'm a bit, bit, bit slow on my special brew. Hold Sorry, you please continue. Um, supposedly this combination of ex- like extreme behaviour mm. followed by extreme remorse is a characteristic of alcoholism. Uh, and also this thing extreme of... Extreme um, behaviour is, you know, is quite far removed from conquering the whole of like oh, the Eastern Hemisphere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, killing his best mate, oh, yeah, killing yeah, a guy yeah. who saved his life yeah. and then feeling really bad about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then... Uh, Supposedly, when he was dying, he insisted on drinking a huge quantity of wine to slake his thirst. <laughs> and this guy says um, his insistence on wine rather than water only makes sense if his fever was due to alcohol withdrawal. Mm. But this thing about his parents. So his father was Philip II of Macedon. Yes. Big lad. Huge. Um, and apparently a sarcastic and unpredictable man, deliberately keeping his associates and son, presumably anyone who was a threat to his power, mm. in a state of unease. And then, of course, his mother told him that he was a god. Um, yeah, that's going to give anyone a complex. So there's a lot going. There's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Um, but perhaps the apex mm. of Alexander's um, alcoholism, or at least the apex of the consequences of it, yes, were tragic but also hilarious, given the given a gap of thousands of years of history. Mm. He once staged a drinking contest that killed 41 people, <laughs> including the winner. What? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so Alexander's armies were part of the reason he was so successful, but also as a um, consequence of having conquered various different er- vast geographical areas. Mm. His army was very ethnically and culturally diverse. Yes. And so one of his big uh, potential problems, one of the, one of part of his genius was keeping all these people... All these desperate people to together cause. to one, yeah. And one of the ways that he did this was um, he, um, well, he, he arranged to marry certain people of slightly higher rank officers and stuff off to certain other people in di- from different Yeah, backgrounds. kind of like the daughters of the, you know, the kings of the people he was conquering would marry as generals. Yeah, and exactly. Yeah. Um, and another thing that they all had in common, most of these people from these disparate areas, was they loved to drink. Don't we all? So this was in the city of Susa, which was in Persia. Mm. Um, bear in mind, this was 324 BC, so this is pre-Islamic time. So there's no uh, issue with some serious wine consumption going on. Yeah. Um, he proposed a public drinking competition. Um, and this was part of a large party to celebrate the passing of one of Alexander's most trusted advisors, a guy called Calamus, who was an old man. Mm. And he'd fallen ill after his lengthy travel, which presumably a lot of people did in those days, if you were part of Alexander's army. Yeah. It was determined that whoever could consume the greatest amount of wine would win a gold crown. Um, And no doubt, adulation, glory. Of course. Um, 41 participants were chosen. um, And supposedly, so there was a difference in Macedon, or Macedon, as it was, um... They drank their wine unadulterated, no unmixed, water. which may have contributed, I suppose, to Alexander's alcoholism, alcoholism if it, that's mm. what it was. Um, but there was something of an oversight in the competition planning because they thought, well, yeah, we just use Mas- Macedonian wine and 
not all the people involved. Everyone used else to is used to the diluted wine. wine. Diluted right. Wine. Um, and a guy called uh, Promacus, who was a foot soldier, was declared the winner after downing four gallons of the wine. Jeez. Which is what we're talking, four gallons. How many litres, yeah. That's a cool 18 litres. 18 litres, so that's... Around 25 bottles of wine. Around 25 bottles, yeah. And apparently, supposedly, wine in its pure form back then was stronger than it is now, which is part of the reason they diluted it so much. Obviously, it's also like you drank it more because you couldn't drink water and stuff, presumably, but... um, that's excessive. I mean, that's Andre the Giant levels. More than. Yeah. Um, however, mm. 35 of the 41 participants died that very day from alcohol poisoning. <laughs> um, and this is meant to bring your army together. And you've, you've, you've killed them. You've killed the best drinkers. <laughs> Promacus, who is the winner, mm. probably saying his name wrong, but and the other remaining five who had lived to tell the tale only lived to sell that for one day because they died the next day of alcohol poisoning. Everyone who participated, it's like the Squid Game, but worse odds. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but Alexander himself was dead within the next year. No. 32, which what? is your age, actually, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and nearly my age. Nearly well. your age, but yeah. I mean, I've not nearly done as much as Alexander the Great has done in my life. One well, thing, I mean, they say, like, you know, Alexander the Great cried tears of salt at the age of 32. No world's yeah. up to conquer. But, like, young men will literally create one of history's largest empires mm. rather than go to therapy. Yeah. <laughs> rather than, rather than, <laughs> rather than go to therapy. One thing, uh, another interesting story about Alexander the Great was uh, almost at the height of his, his career, he... Uh, conquered Persepolis in what is now Iran. He um, it was the the seat, the throne of the Achaemenid Empire at the time. Right. And obviously, you know, you've you've beaten one of your main rivals. You've beaten the Persians. Let, let's have a party, as you do. Um, and in the cause of that party, and there's sort of various different versions of of whether it was intentional or whether he was tricked by. Uh, his men or by some courtesans or, you know, various people. Um, but Alexander gave the order for them to burn the city to the ground, one of the greatest cities in uh, in history up to that point, one of the largest cities in the world at that time. And they burned it to the ground just days after conquering it, um, which goes to show again, you know, what you were talking about, his kind of mentality of extreme acts. And, and he then lamented it for the rest of his life, they say, because he destroyed such an amazing, beautiful city. Um, but weirdly, and like quite interestingly, the fact that it was burned, um, you know, recently they discovered, within the last hundred years, they discovered like 30-odd thousand clay tablets underneath the ruins of Persepolis wow. that were almost cured by the flames, made solid, and then remained there for 2,000 years. So because of Alexander burning this thing down, those records and those clay tablets, had, which were basically very mundane things, but were, were preserved, preserved beneath Persepolis. Wow. So we now know all this interesting stuff about how this Achaemenid Empire worked and you know what people like a janitor was paid and all that like mental kind of stuff that we don't really have for any other kind of 
ancient civilization, but we have it because those tablets were preserved and they, they probably wouldn't have been otherwise by this fire and then just wow. left there under the ground. So Amazing. He did us a solid there. And the moral of the story is, yeah, I don't know. If you burn, if you conquer something, burn it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think in many ways, the modern version of Alexander the Great mm. is probably Boris Yeltsin. <laughs> I absolutely agree. <laughs> Uh, Certainly from a drinking and regret element, who is not from a conquering element. Absolutely one of history's greatest boozers. I mean, you can't, yes, in retrospect, given the current situation with the Russian leadership, yeah, probably I mean, might have been a bit better to have someone a bit more capable to choose his successor, yeah. Putin, but also hilarious. Yeah, as you said, Yeltsin... He made Russia what it is today for good and for bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he liked to drink. Uh, like many Russians of his generation, they say that Yeltsin considered beer to be a soft drink. Um, yeah. So if, you know, if you're, you're, your starting level is beer, uh, he then obviously, again, very Russian, loved a vodka. So he'd have beer for... You know, instead of water, he'd have vodka probably when we would be drinking beer, perhaps. But the thing is, you must... And don't get me wrong, I love that categorization. Mm. But you must notice... You can say, oh yeah, I think beer's a soft drink. But... I mean, you must notice that after a few beers, <laughs> you, you start... You, yeah. you feel a bit pissed. Well, I think there's like a, you know, like, strong Russian man. Yeah, like, they're lying to themselves. Yeah, they, they think... Well, they are big drinkers, but mm. they... they a bit deluded when it comes to the effects of alcohol, right. let's say. Sorry, I interrupted. <laughs> um, interestingly, he was a big bourbon fan, which I oh. think is emblematic of the corruption of the uh, leadership of the Soviet <laughs> Union at the time that he was drinking filthy Yankee, American. filthy Yankee uh, bourbon. Yeah. And uh, he also loved a red wine, which he believed protected Russian submariners from radiation. So okay. he'd put the submariners on, the, on their nuclear subs with cases and cases of red wine right. uh, to protect them from the inherent radiation. Not think about it, at least. No. He was a booze artist throughout his career, um, but what it really, really came to the fore when he was, for some reason, well, not even for some reason, but when he became the head of the uh, USSR and then the the nation the nascent russian uh federation yeah certainly from kind of 1994 onwards he said that was when he really snapped uh in terms of his alcoholism he felt that he was alcohol really was the only way to get rid of stress and i imagine you that, right that. I mean, <laughs> right that, if you are the leader of russia during <laughs> the collapse of the soviet <laughs> union or just after then maybe you're going to be a bit stressed. Find some better coping mechanisms, yeah. Yeah. And this came to a fore in a lot of uh, political incidents uh, over the years. And there's there's many famous examples of or interactions between him and Bill Clinton um, at a diplomatic event with uh, in Vancouver. Yeltsin began to drink wine at lunch to mm -hmm. protect himself from radiation. Uh, then he had three whiskeys in the afternoon, and then he decided not to eat at dinner, but just to keep drinking wine. Glasses downed in one, time after time again. 
He ended the night by jumping across the table and wrestling Clinton with bear hugs. <laughs> and then another hilarious incident was when he was in he was staying in the White House. So, you know, things were really thawing thawing between the uh the East and the West at the time. You can't really yeah. imagine Putin staying at the White House these days. That's true. But um Yeltsin he was staying at the White House and he was so drunk at night after whatever they'd been doing, he wandered into the streets of Washington, D.C. in his underwear, trying to flag down a cab to take him to a pizza place. Uh, obviously, the, security, the Secret Service agents saw this. They saw Yeltsin on Pennsylvania Avenue, dead drunk, clad in his underwear, yelling for a taxi, slurring his words as he had an argument with the, the Secret Service agents agents and saying I'm not going to go back to you know the White House I'm going out for a pizza uh, <laughs> and then the the kind of the, the journalist who like uh, revealed this story to the world spoke to Clinton about it and said Clinton what like how did you know Mr. President how did that end well he said well he went and got a pizza and then did the same thing the next night and then the next night <laughs> wow so he certainly uh made a name for himself, I guess, in the political circles of the time um, and was definitely considered to be an absolute disaster and a joke because of the amount of, of how inebriated he was. Mm. But unfortunately, those you know decisions that he made probably had pretty wide-reaching ramifications on the world as we know it. It does make you wonder how people, someone like him became leader of the Russian Federation. Yeah, well, Churchill became leader of Britain and he was drinking... Yeah, but he had a bit, he had a bit about him. He was competent. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he uh, went to go to bed, whereas Yeltsin seemed to be going on a pizza. Which, that, I wish, again, I respect. I wish Yeltsin... I mean, yeah, we've been, as innocents abroad in America, mm. also coming from a country where pizza is not widely available. Yes. <laughs> we've yeah. been pissed and wanted to go and get a pizza. It yeah, happens. it happens. Um, but yeah, would be good if Yeltsin was still president of Russia, probably. In some yeah, ways. or just had never been president. And yeah, yeah. Give it Gorbachev. Give it Gorb yeah, Give it back to Gorbachev. RRP. Speaking of countries who habitually elect absolute jokers as <laughs> their <laughs> leaders, um, we all love the Australians. Yeah, um, and Bob Hawke who is a former PM of Australia, actually, I mean, as we promised, as I promised earlier on to link back a Guinness World Record. Ah, yes. Um, the former Australian Prime Minister, Bob Hawke, held the world record for drinking a yard of ale in the shortest time. That is very impressive. When was he Prime Minister? And let me tell you, so he was... And did he do the well, record whilst he was in office? No, so sadly... He was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford between 1953 and 1956. And he sculled a yard of ale, which two and a half pints, mm. 1.4 litres, in 11 seconds, which then was a world record. I couldn't even do a pint in that time. Well, that's why you'll never be Prime Minister of Australia. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to come full circle, back to the world of sport. So we, yeah. we obviously opened with Andre the Giant. It's a callback. It's a callback. There's a few other... I want to say legends, um, but 
people from the world of sport. I don't I don't want to glorify <laughs> one them. man's legend is another man's person. <laughs> people from the world of sport who have uh, done some serious drinking over the, over the years. Yeah, Andy Fordham. Have you ever heard of him? Known as the... so, you're also blending. You're you're, you're uh, blurring the definition of sport as well as legend. <laughs> okay, darts. sports player. Yeah, not a sports. Okay, not an athlete. Not an athlete. Darts player, dartsman. Uh, Andy Fordham, known as simply the Viking. Yes, he used to consume on average seventy-seven beers a day. Wow, that's a lot. Seventy-seven beers a day. Again, I think there were bottles. Just for you know, clarity, not pints. But <laughs> it's a lot. Uh, and during his uh, time at the top, so he was he was world champion at one stage. So he was you know he was he was functioning at you know not the highest level of sport, but certainly a level. Um, and he was known as the super tanker of the Oki because of the amount of beer that he had in his belly at any one time. That is seriously Like a super impressive. tanker. But he would have at least 24 bottles of lager just before he went on stage to play darts. Wow. Which, you know, if you ever, you know, it's difficult when it's you're difficult. sober to, to get it. I think anything one, with like very specific hand-eye coordination. Precision, lines, accuracy, yeah. Like playing was, an instrument when you're pissed is yeah. difficult, very difficult. And he, was, he, he won a world championship with the 24 bottles of lager in his belly. Love and... It. He used to drink so much before playing darts that he would have failed a breath test three days later, is a fact. When we, well, again, to make us the main characters, mm. we know how, when we were in America, as we were just mentioning, we went out in Nashville. I think it was mm. Nashville. Yeah. And the next day at 4 p.m., and we wasn't, it, it, this is not to say, oh, absolute legends, because it was just like a normal night out. It was out. a normal night out. And next we up, were still over the limit at 4, 4 p.m. the next day. Yeah. So that, if Andy Fordham <laughs> is over the limit three days later and he's just won the world championship. Fair play to him. I respect that. It all ended for Andy Fordham uh, when he collapsed backstage at the lakeside, the home of BDO darts, um, due to his, his alcoholism. He was about to go on stage and he collapsed before he went on. So he stopped drinking. He switched to alcohol-free beers. Sadly, he, he died from organ failure at oh no, 59. Oh, he died. Mm. So there's, okay. there's that. Yeah, it happens. Um, it happens, but Bob Hawke mm. <laughs> <laughs> lived to be 89 so, it's not well, yeah. necessarily a death sentence. The so, Queen Mother lived to be 101. The Queen Mother, yes, she was drinking every day of her life. A lot by all accounts. 101, a lot by all accounts. A fun fact, I don't know if it's true or not, but a fun maybe fact. Sorry, is you it, can't be sued by a dead person. It's <laughs> uh, is that she never opened a pair of curtains in her life, okay. which I would suggest is probably quite hard to do when you're sozzled. So, fair play to her. Yeah. Yeah. Good on her. Yeah. She was so, just waited on her entire life. She never opened or closed a pair of curtains. Yeah. For a hundred years. I read something about her that said um, she had a little, like a little fella, like a mm. butler, called Colin. Mm. And she, at 6pm every day, she'd say in a kind of, what I imagine would be a cheeky little voice, is it the magic hour yet, Colin? It was always at 6pm. And he'd look at his watch in a kind of 
exaggerated fashion and say, I do believe it is, Mum. <laughs> and we go and make her a martini. Love it. But love it. Yeah. Things when you've got literally nothing else to worry about all day as well. Then that's you're going to hit that mark at six pm every day. But I mean, compared to some of the people we've been talking about, her restraining herself till six pm to drink. Oh yeah. yeah I mean, Churchill yeah. was drinking it. Yeah. At eight am, basically. Yeah, but just Andres Hunt, Thompson was drinking it. His his eight am, which was three pm for most normal people. Yeah, his six pm was <laughs> having to smoke weed to set the edge. Off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, haven't been awake for three hours. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. Ah. R.I.P. Right. Uh, a quick, another sports one is Wade Boggs, who may be known to fans that it's always sunny in Philadelphia, who famously drank... Real name. Real, real name, Wade, Wade, Wade Boggs. Boggs. Wade Boggs. He was a baseball Middle player. True. They, you know, the American baseball players are pretty... They've got some weird names. Babe Ruth. Uh, he was Wade. also a big boozer, I think. He was a big, he was yeah. a big boozer. Wade Boggs, big boozer. He was ranked number 95 on the greatest 100 baseball players of 1999. But I mean, 95 is pretty good out of 100. But he was also better at drinking. And he allegedly drank 64 beers on a cross-country flight from the East Coast to the West Coast. Um, 64 beers in one flight. That's probably a whole flight's worth of beers coming back to what we were talking mm. about earlier. It's a seriously impressive feat. He denies that it was 64 but his teammates' testimonials actually back up the fact that it probably was, and it wasn't the first time he'd done something of that uh, nature. Right. So, impressive boozer. But the real, uh, again, stretching the defini- definition of sport a bit, but one that <laughs> is really worth talking about is Alex Higgins. Yeah, absolutely. Hurricane Higgins. He was a phenomenon in the world of snooker. People said about him, the drunker he got, the calmer he got. And obviously being calm when you're playing snooker Mm -hmm. really, really helps. What would he drink? He would basically everything. Um, But by the end of his life, he'd been barred from almost every hotel and bar in the country in the UK. So not that calm unless he was playing snooker. (laughs) Not that calm unless he was playing. Oh, no, absolutely. He was a terrible, terrible drunk. He was awful. But he, unless he was playing snooker, huge self-destruction, booze, cigarettes, you know, drugs, everything, the lot. Um, but there were there were a few pubs that would allow him in. He'd been barred from ever in the country, apart from uh, the Winning Post Bar in Banger, uh, the Royal in Sandy Row in Belfast, so both Northern Irish, uh, and close to home, the Circus Tavern in Manchester would still oh, let him in. Wow. So... Got to respect that. Is that still there, the Circus Tavern? It's still there, still on Portland Street. His his most famous dr- drinking story was that on uh, the India snooker tour, he was sent home in disgrace after one day. So during a match with Oliver Reed, he poured fairy liquid into Reed's glass of rum. Well, not Oliver Reed, <laughs> another famous drunk. Not, not that, I don't <laughs> think. But he poured fairy liquid into Reed's glass of rum. Obviously, like the snooker tour back in the 70s sounds absolutely mental. But yeah. day one in India, I'm going to pour fairy liquid into my <laughs> opponent's glass to beat them. Uh, Reed was literally blowing bubbles out of his mouth for hours. Uh, and Higgins was <laughs> sent <hours>. home. <laughs> but before before Higgins was sent home, Reed got his own back by offering him a glass of scotch that turned out to be just Giorgio Armani aftershave. I love the idea that he 
that Oliver Reed drank enough fairy <laughs> liquid yeah. to be blowing bubbles out of his mouth without realising he had washing up. He probably liquid. had about four or five rums by this stage. I feel so. like you can you can taste if there's a bit left in the pan after you've washed it up, you can taste it. Yeah. Yeah, I, agree. I don't know if someone's put it yeah. directly into your drink. But the amount these people were drinking on the That's on the seventies snooker tour, like you probably lose Again, all sense of taste. It's amazing, like it's very hand eye coordination. It's mad, which is the first it's, thing to go when you're pissed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Unfortunately, well, by the end of his life, Higgins had blown around three million quid on drugs, booze, cigarettes, and gambling. Uh, he left. He lost his mansion. He ended up in a caravan. He ended up in homeless hospitals. Eventually, in a shelter. He was losing bets. He was, you know, losing drinks, trying to hustle in the pool circuit. It was just a shadow of his former self. And mm. his last days of his life, he was consisting off baby food and Guinness. Wow. And that was it. And they, again, it's similar to what I was saying about Sinatra, is that it wasn't uh, old age that killed him, it, or even alcoholism in his case, it was malnutrition. It was because yeah. all he was eating was baby food. And he just couldn't survive anymore. Well, he, of, though, those pictures of him at the end of his life is like... It's, it's harrowing. Like, yeah, yeah really, harrowing, really horrible. Horrible. I do want to give a shout out um, to... Because obviously, like most of these stories of people who ultimately alcohol did or seems to have in some way hastened their demise, yes. if not fucking smacked them around the face <laughs> with it. Sometimes you get people who... Um, are in their own way legendary boozers who never even touched a drop. Mm. One of whom, Maggie Bailey, the queen of the mountain bootleggers. Ah. So we're in Harlan County, Kentucky, uh, in the 1920s. Let me take you back. <laughs> Picture the scene. Um, 17-year-old Maggie Bailey. So 1920s Kentucky, we're in Prohibition times. Um, and a lot of people turned to bootlegging because even so alcohol was banned this enormous new black market opened up and um, seems from everything that you read about that era um, to have been fairly easy money mm. oh <laughs> like, god yeah I feel, I feel like I might have been a bootlegger oh, then for sure it seems like easy money um, so at the age of 17 Maggie Bailey began bootlegging to support her family she was the oldest of six siblings. Um, and she developed a real knack for it, became an expert on the Fourth Amendment search and seizure laws. Um, so she was hauled into court dozens of times, but was only convicted once for selling moonshine. Uh, and she served 18 months. Um, and then came out and carried on bootlegging for the next 50 years, always in Harlan County, Kentucky. Um, and she was never arrested again. And she was also a beloved figure in the local community. Mm. So um, she used her money to help local families buy groceries, coal, um, pay for their everyday needs. Um, and even she, she was such a beloved figure that local politicians sought her endorsement when it came to elections. Um, and she finally quit bootlegging at the age of 95. So considering she died in 2005 at the age of 101. Whoa. Um, what? A bootlegger from the 1920s lived to the 
yeah. 2000s. Carried on bootlegging until... That is well, mental. Presumably 1999. However, crucially, she didn't drink, apparently, herself. So that may have contributed to her longevity. But yeah. the Queen Mother... Queen Mother, you get a lot of people who would say like, oh, the secret to my longevity is I have a, a glass of sherry a day or I have a glass of red wine exactly, a day. Yeah. Get, yeah. There was that French lady who um, was, for a long time, when we were growing up, the, mm. the oldest person in the world. I think she was 120 when she died. Yeah. She smoked a cigarette every day. Yeah. So obviously moderation. That's still, it's moderation, but I also do feel like there are some people in this world who... It's basically genetics, isn't it? You yeah, no, yeah, you just, yeah. Um, I'd like to mention one other honourable mention. Yeah. Um, friend of the show, Star Wars. Yeah. Carrie Fisher. Yes, Carrie Fisher. Yeah. Carrie Fisher, legendary drunk. The fact that her own autobiography was called Wishful Drinking. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's hilarious. But I want to touch on a particular well it, it turns out throughout most of the empire strikes back her and harrison ford were just getting absolutely on it yeah. at all times uh during the scenes in which were filmed on um cloud city so you know lano carizian bespin bespin uh vader is coming uh carrie fisher and um had and harrison ford had ingested uh, they'd been given a drink called tunisian death drink by uh, someone, probably one of the roadies or someone on the staff yeah. or whatever, given this Tunisian death drink. Um, again, bearing in mind it was like the late 70s, early 80s, like the stuff that was knocking around in kind of random shit then that you're yeah. going to imbibe Tunisian death drink, like it's going to be pretty mental. Anyway, the entirety of um, Cloud City, they were either drunk on this concoction or coming down from this concoction the whole thing like there's there's moments that are like footage of Harrison Ford mouthing Carrie's lines to her because she was so sozzled that she couldn't even remember what she was meant to say next and the whole thing like Marlon Brando is just... signs people <laughs> exactly. holding up signs so uh, the fact that those scenes even got like shot at all and made it to the film is like a miracle because wow. they were both so battered um, but I would say, to me, as a as a Star Wars fan, it's one of the most iconic moments of Empire Strikes Back. So I respect them. Yeah, in, absolutely. You know, in vino art, in this case. In vino, Star Wars. Yes. <laughs> uh, on which note, I think we should end, probably, for this week. Let's do it. Um, so, yeah, thank you very much for listening, as always. Um, if you've enjoyed it, please... Tell your friends, your family, your enemies. <laughs> tell, tell, everyone, tell, tell everyone. Tell everyone. Tell your enemies. Uh, yeah, like and subscribe. Leave a review. Um, we'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.